0: burden of my heart with going through this book is so that we might learn how the body of Christ is to function. How are we as a local New Testament representation of the body of Christ, how are we to function? And the amazing thing in light of our culture is, is that God is not mute on this subject he has given to us exactly his will and his aim and his purposes for us for a local New Testament church and yet I think I mentioned this to you before that at least in our day to day one of the great lacks of knowledge comes in the fact of this question what is a church what are we to be doing how are we to be functioning And here in this book, it really tells us all of those things that we not only need to know, but we need to guard. We need to guard it once we know it. So let's read here Ephesians 4. I'm going to read again the first 16 verses, but our passage for this morning is is in verses 3 through 6. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace there is one body and one spirit just as also you were called in one hope of your calling one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who is over all and through all and in all but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of christ's gift therefore it says When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. We have come to know and to understand God's eternal purpose. That eternal purpose, that eternal will, was seen when he gave to the Apostle Paul to reveal the mystery. That mystery which was hidden in the Old Testament but now is revealed. It is brought to a radiant outworking in the church which is Christ's body. We as a body, are the outworking and the fulfilling of that eternal purpose now in our nation today we are so individualistic we tend to forget the body aspect of christianity but the truth of the matter is is that god is first working in the body then in each individual member It's not individual member, that's it. No, there is one body, and that body is the body of Jesus Christ, as it is now being expressed in local New Testament geographical congregations. One day that body will meet all together. Hallelujah for that day. But that day is still future. We, we, Faith Memorial Baptist Church, according to 1 Corinthians 12, we are the body of Christ. We're not the only body of Christ on the face of the earth, but we are the body of Christ. And so therefore if someone comes into our congregation and they begin to see the atmosphere, they begin to see the love that is shown among one another, they ought to be seeing the fullness or the person of Christ in that local New Testament congregation. And so that eternal purpose Paul prays for us to have not only the revelation of that knowledge, but the spirit of wisdom of that knowledge, and that knowledge to be enlightened to us. It should be a growing knowledge of God the Father himself, and in the growth of that knowledge, it doesn't end there, right? In the growth of that knowledge, we're to be strengthened with power by his spirit in our inner man so that the fullness of God and the outworking of Christ would be seen in this life and in our lives. And folks, what I have just described to you is the power of God in a local New Testament assembly. The power of God isn't being slain in the Spirit. The power of God isn't someone popping you on the head and you falling over. The power of God is not speaking in Babel. The power of God is not when the whole community falls on their face, although that is an expression of his power, isn't it? His power is to be seen in the outworking of this eternal purpose in a church. And folks, that eternal purpose has A unity of aim in a congregation. What is that oneness of aim that every person who's a member of a local New Testament assembly should have? Well, verses 1 through 3. We're to have all lowliness or humility. This is our aim. This is our purpose. We're not to walk in pride in this congregation, we're not to be insistent on my rights, my way, my understanding, we're all to be in unity and in conformity, although we have varying maturities about this, all in unity and conformity to this aim. We are to walk in lowliness, in humility. We're to walk in all gentleness. And the King James has translated meekness, but it means really a willingness to be governed by God, to have that mildness of spirit. Even our Lord Himself stated, Come unto me, all ye who are weary, who are burdened, and I will give you rest. Now listen to what He says about Himself For I am meek. I am humble and lowly in heart. This is His characteristic. We're not showing Christ because we wear sandals and robes and have a beard. We're showing Christ when the Spirit of Christ is being seen in us and through us. We're to have all tolerance and all patience with one another. We all have sandpaper that kind of rubs other people the wrong way. We all can wake up on the wrong side of the bed, as it were, right? And we need to have that tolerance with one another, not just in a human effort, but in his cruciform love. We're to have that type of. Of tolerance, And this is to be outworked. This is our aim. This is what we're to be cultivating in a New Testament church. And you'll notice in verse 3, he says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. For us to have these att- these attitudes, this characteristic of Spirit, is going to take effort. It's not going to be natural, as it were. For us to grow in this is going to have to have us really set our mind on that, to walk in this fashion. And folks, when these attributes, these aims are thriving in the New Testament church, what you will have is unity. That unity has already been given to us in Christ. Folks, the body of Christ, the literal body of Christ is not disunified, right? That unity has already been given to us. We are to guard it, we are to preserve it, and we are to cultivate that. We are to make sure that nothing in each individual member that pride creeps in or we're insisting on our way that none of that enters into a local New Testament church. For folks, when that does, you will have disruption, won't you? You will have disruption. And folks, you and I need to guard this. Even if our humility and our gentleness is abused, like Christ's gentleness and humility was abused, we're to still be humble and gentle in our dealings with people. Now that is our unity and conformity, or I should say this, the unity and growing conformity of AIM in a local New Testament Assembly. But there's a second thing that we must be in unity and growing conformity of, and that is our doctrine what we hold to, what we believe. And you'll see that, look at verse four through six. there is how many bodies, how many spirits, how many hopes, how many lords, how many faiths, how many baptism, how many gods? They're all how many. One. There's one. And folks, that implies that when it comes to certain doctrines as the Scripture has given them to us, we are to have the same mind about those doctrines. It is important, if I could word it this way, it is important our statement of faith. What we are gathering ourselves around. Doctrines such as his body, which is the church. Doctrines such as the Holy Spirit, the doctrine such as the hope that comes into play with our being called of God, the one doctrine concerning the Lord himself, the Son of God, the body of faith the Spirit's baptism of us into the body of Jesus Christ, that there is one God and Father of all. And you might say in verses 4 through 6 that what Paul is giving to this church is that church's statement of faith, and it should be our statement of faith also. And so, folks, what we learn at this point is something very important in light of the culture today a worthy walk, a walk that is pleasing to the Lord, does not occur if we jettison certain doctrines. Now out in the world today and out in the religious world today, there is a great call to minimize doctrine. You might have heard this before something along this, these lines. Doctrine divides, love unites. Anybody ever heard that before? That's a mantra. About 10 years ago was a mantra. You heard it everywhere. Folks, true doctrine does divide and what I mean by that is it excludes those who don't believe it. Right? But true doctrine unites the people of God. It brings them into conformity to the maturity of the Son of God. And folks, we as a church, don't care about other churches in this sense, but we as a church, we have a responsibility to be diligent not only to guard our aim but to guard our doctrinal foundation. We must guard that. It's not just to be certain words on a piece of paper. And that's how all denominations and all churches eventually go astray. They don't go astray because they had a vote and said, let's abolish our statement of faith. No, what they do is, is they gradually minimize doctrine And exalt this type of romantic unity that is out there to be accepting of everyone and every belief to say well you know there's many ways to heaven even though there's only one God or there's all kinds of ways in which we differ we ought to minimize those differences well folks there are certain differences we should not minimize We've got to guard the unity of the Spirit in the bond of what? Peace. People who go into a local New Testament church with different doctrinal underpinnings who refuse to be brought into conformity to that doctrine, they are the ones who are disrupting the peace. Not those who are saying, hey, you're not in conformity and unity with this. It is them. Folks, whether you're looking at the World Council of Churches or whether you look at ecumenicalism or whether you look at broad evangelicalism, there really is, underneath it all, is this little cry for unity. They know they're not in unity, but they don't know what the unity consists of. And folks, even even a church can have a disharmonious congregation. When the foundation of that church is anything other than the doctrines of Christ, whether it be politics, whether it be help groups, whether it be programs, whether it be social activities, all of these types of things which may be in their proper place are good. But if you have a church and they have different groups within that church all having different aims and purposes and focuses, even though there may be a superficial unity, it's really not what? It's really not unified. Can we as New Testament believers say that we can be one with a Roman Catholic can we say that we can't say that why the Roman Catholics Church doctrine differs from the doctrine of Christ I just can't hold hands with a Mormon They may be good people, they may be good citizens, they may have some good moral values, but they don't have the doctrine of Christ. I can't say, well, you know what, let's let's mingle in some buddhistic philosophy in all this and it'll be okay. You can't yoke up with something like that. You can't jettison the doctrine and expect to have unity and conformity. You can't reject And jettison the doctrine if you want to be pleasing to God to walk a walk that is worthy of that calling by which we have been called so what is this doctrinal unity that we are to guard well first of all what we see here is a doctrine of the Trinity look here you'll see it in the verses but look at verse four do you see the word spirit everybody see that word that's the third member of the godhead look at verse five you've got one what one lord that's the second member of the godhead in verse six you have one god and father that's the first member of the godhead i'm not ranking it in first second and third like there's there you know one's ranked above the other they're all equal god is one in three persons you've got a trinitarian formula preserved in this doctrinal confession and walk before the lord and folks there are groups today who say well you shouldn't talk about the trinity i think that if you look into the new testament how can you talk about the new testament without talking about the trinity because it's where? It's everywhere. It's all through the epistles, all throughout the Gospels, and you've got to believe that the second member of the Godhead took on human flesh. Well, you can't say he's the second member of the Godhead without talking about the, the Trinity. You just can't do that. And folks, the Spirit in the Son and the Father They're one, aren't they? They're one. So folks, on these things and on the proper understanding of these things, these doctrines, there is to be, if I could word it this way, there is to be no tolerance with this within a local New Testament assembly. What are these things? Well, In verse 4, you have one body. One body is referring to whose body? Christ. And Christ's body is expressed in local New Testament assemblies on earth today. And folks, it is interesting that as we talk about these doctrines, and I almost did this this morning, I decided not to. What you are talking about in verses 4 through 6 is a body of doctrine that we call systematic theology. That's a big word. But in my library, I have a couple of bookshelves and they're full of systematic theologies. I was going to bring one today and I'll just kind of paint a picture here. It's about this wide, it's about this tall, and it's about that thick. Okay? If I'm talking about the church, the body of Christ, What topic of systematic theology am I referring to? I'm referring to what we call ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church. So the very first thing that Paul brings out here is that there needs to be this unity and conformity. A growing conformity is our understanding of the doctrine of the church. What's the second thing you see in verse 4? You see the word spirit that's referring to the Holy Spirit. For those of you that are familiar with systematic theologies you know that they all have common sections and the Holy Spirit would be included under the section called pneumatology or the study of the Spirit of God. So first of all we've got this this growing this unity and we're to guard it right? which means we're to have an understanding of it. We're to have an understanding of the body and how it's to work. We're to have an understanding of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit works and operates and functions within a local New Testament assembly and in our lives. And then in verse four, you got, we're called in one hope of your calling. And folks, you could call that eschatology. What is eschatology? It's the study of end times or what's going to be happening in the in the future. Does the Lord want us to know about our hope? Yes. We're to have this confident expectation that Christ is coming. He hasn't come back already, He's coming. That's in the future. That's our confident expectation. That's our hope. And when he comes back, he's going to do certain things. All of those things fall under this area that we call eschatology or the doctrine of end times or end things. So we're building this book and so far what we've learned is that yes, historically, doesn't really matter what age you look at or when the date of the systematic theology book was published, it will have a section on the doctrine of the church. And it will have a section on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And it will have a section on the doctrine of end things or end times. Then in verse 5, you have, what's the very first one? One one Lord. This is referring to Christ. And folks, is there, for those of you that are familiar with systematic theologies, is there a section in systematic theologies, no matter where you look at the history of the church, called Christology, or the study of Christ? The answer to that is what? Yes. Yes. Then you have one faith. This is talking about the body of faith or the body of truth. Now that body of truth, if we're going to hold to our understanding that what Paul is telling us is really the topics of what we as a church hold to and guard and systematize in our teaching and preaching and learning and conformity, then the body of truth would involve three aspects of our systematic theology. First of all, it would involve soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. Would you agree with that? Would you say if I say the body of truth or the or the faith, would you not agree that how to be saved ought to be include, included in the body of faith? What else might be included there? <clears throat> well, anthropology, which is the study of man. Do you think that there's an understanding that all men are depraved? We're all sinners and sinful before God. And we need to understand that and how that came to pass, that God did not create us in sin. He created us in goodness and wholeness and holiness. But we chose to fall. Would you not agree that ought to be a part of of the body of faith or truth? And then, of course, involving both of those things is another section in systematic theology called hermitology or the study of sin. Sin is an evil thing, isn't it? But folks, you can't know that you need to be saved unless you know what sin is and you know that all men are sinners and that they need to be saved from that sin and how to do that, right? So when he talks about one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, he's including all of those sections here in our understanding. Then there is baptism. One baptism. And that's going to fall under our heading of the Holy Spirit because I don't believe this is referring to water baptism. I think this is referring to spirit baptism and I'll give you a passage for that here in just a few moments. And then folks the last one in verse 6 is what how many gods one god and father of all in our systematic theology we call that theology proper and folks what i've given to you and given to you these categories if i were to bring that big thick book here with print that you could read. I got, a, I got another systematic theology and it's about this high, about like that, and about that thick, but you need a magnifying glass to read it. If I bring in that, that systematic theology, it covers every one of the categories that I just covered. Some people may add one or another, but it all falls under those categories. Why? because i left out one category and that's called bibliology or that's the study of how the word of god came to man folks you can't have a proper understanding of the unity of the body and of the holy spirit and the unity of our hope and the one Lord and the unity of doctrine the body of truth and one baptism and one God and Father you can't have any of that unless you open your Bible and you see your Bible as being the very words of God and in most systematic theologies they start out with Bibliology because that's really where the foundation is and then move into theology proper Folks, isn't it amazing that the maturity of our congregation, your maturity as as an individual member of this congregation, the maturity of this congregation depends on the majority of our church being filled with this fullness that I just described to you. To be filled with the fullness of the knowledge of what God has said about church, his body. A knowledge about the working and function of the Holy Spirit. A knowledge about future things. A knowledge about Christ taking on humanity, that one Lord. To have as a unity and a growing conformity for us to adhere to the body of truth. Or sometimes it's called, we read it in our scripture reading, the analogy of the faith. To have that understanding how that when we were born again, we were regenerated and by by Jesus Christ baptized into his body through his spirit. And to know that there is only one true and living God. Folks, your maturity and my maturity depends on our understanding of those things. Now today in the American culture, because the culture places an emphasis on youth, And immaturity. We have multitudes of churches that are sprouting up all throughout this land that work hard at staying immature. And folks, you know this. You know when I was a child I couldn't wait to grow up. But I had one one of my children said, I don't want to grow up. I like it at age whatever. And I remember saying, saying, I'm sorry, (laughs) but you can't stay there. And they were so sad, but we have churches that are trying to keep people in their immaturity. And we have a culture that is saying, I want to have everything youthful, youthful desires, youthful motivations, youthful aims and if someone comes in and says, come on, let me put my arm around you, let me bring you to maturity, they're like, "Uh uh-uh, no. No. I like it just the way I am. But folks, the New Testament doesn't know anything about that. We're to grow up in the knowledge of the Son of God. Look at verse 15 of chapter 4. Speaking the truth in love, we, that is that local New Testament assembly at Ephesus, and us are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. And folks, when we're talking about growing up, what we know is this, that when we, when we are being groomed for maturity, when we are growing up in the education of the knowledge of God, sometimes our Heavenly Father will bring things in our life that kind of grate on us a little bit. Why, well, I like this. I like this music. I like this type of assembly. I like this particular program. Well, there may be nothing wrong with any of those things, Right? But there is a growing up that has to take place. And folks, Christ, just jumping ahead a little bit, Christ gave to his body evangelists and pastor teachers so that they would be saying every time we meet, to some degree or another, let's grow up! Now do you ever reach the apex in this life? No. Paul says, I haven't arrived. But I press on for the hope of that upward calling in Christ Jesus. And let those of you that are mature have the same aim, he would write in Philippians. Everybody see that? Folks, it's not this. It's not the pastor only has all the understanding and the knowledge, and we just kind of stay there and as a spectator listen to him, give little lectures, and then we walk away and stay in the maturity level that we're at. We are to grow up into him. And that's going to involve doctrine. And folks, this really, if I was going to make an application that is not directly here in the text, but is applicable, I think, this is why we as a local New Testament assembly, we have a covenant. We have a one another that the scripture speaks about that we are to hold each other accountable in. And not only do we have a covenant, we have a statement of what? A statement of faith. We have the doctrines that we are gathered ourselves around. Now, it doesn't mean that you understand everything about every one of those doctrines, especially if you are a new believer and you come into a church. You you probably don't have an understanding of half or maybe three quarters of it all. But you do have some understanding. And you want to grow up in those things. And we're to help each other grow up in those things. And folks, it's not like this. It's not like, okay, this person comes in, they become a member of our church, and we hand them that thick systematic theology book and say, read it. No, it's the day in, week in, week out exposition of what God has said, right? And we're to engraft that. So there is to be one body, and the book of Ephesians talks about his body being the fullness of him that fills all in all. It talks about, and probably this is the major point in verses four through six, that there's not a gospel for the Jew and another for the Gentile, but God has reconciled both Jew and Gentile unto God in one body by the cross. He speaks of the perfecting of the saints. He speaks of us edifying the body of Christ, building up one another in Ephesians 4 and verse 12. He talks about the whole body coming together and each individual member of that body having differing measures of gifts and this all working together. I call this a coordinated unity. And you know what a body is that's not coordinated, right? It's spastic. One arm wants to go one way, another foot wants to go the other way. If you have somebody like that, you take them where? Take them to the doctor. We're to be a coordinated body as we function together in this. And folks, you and I, and men specifically, we can't be the proper heads of our home unless we understand what it means that Christ is the head of the church and He is the Savior of the body. And how He does that in sanctification in a local New Testament assembly, because that's what I'm supposed to be doing in my home using the means of sanctification to draw them into the presence of Christ, to be born again, and to walk therein, in our homes. If you don't understand ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church, you're not going to understand how to have a proper home or how to love your wife. I'm to love my wife as I love my own body. Because Christ loves us because he loved his own body. And Paul would go on and say, now we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. If you don't understand that unity and the working out of that unity, you're not going to be able to have a proper home life. This is urgent and important. There's how many bodies? One body. And we're to guard the doctrine and understanding of that. There's only one spirit. Boy, is there a misunderstanding about the Holy Spirit. Everybody tries to make the working of the Holy Spirit some mystical, unknown, mysterious thing out there. But this book is very clear on what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. The Spirit of God is the outworking of the power of God in our life. All right, let me ask you this. Was Christ filled with the Spirit? Did the Spirit, God the Father, reconcile us in the body of His dear Son through His Spirit? Yes. Well, folks, there wasn't anything mystical about that. Our understanding was lacking, but it didn't show itself. Christ didn't get goosebumps. His hair didn't stand on end. God worked in him, didn't He? The power of God. And folks, the Holy Spirit works in our life in that same way to develop Christ's likeness in our lives. So he speaks in this book of being sealed with the Holy Spirit, a promise. He talks about God giving to us as a congregation the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. How do you know the Holy Spirit is working in a church? When the knowledge of God is being preached and you're engrafting it and understanding it. That's the Holy Spirit working in our lives. We have access unto god by one spirit and we are being built together for a habitation of god through the spirit of god he talks about god the spirit revealing certain things concerning this mystery being revealed to paul which to other ages was not made known to the sons of men but is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by his spirit and we have it written down in our bible the holy spirit gave us the new testament and folks it is by the holy spirit That you and I and we as a church are strengthened with power by His Spirit in our inner man. Folks, when you see someone go through trial and they stand, they don't reject Christ. They don't turn their back on Christ. They don't forsake the assembling of themselves together. They're going to their Bible. They're going to prayer. That's the power of God. That's the Holy Spirit of God. Why? Lost people don't act that way. When lost people fall in trouble, they turn away from God. They blame God. They certainly don't go to prayer about it. They just want out of it. There's something inside of us, we may want to get out of it, but there's something deep down inside of us that is Abba, Father. Right? I know that's not very romantic, that's not very goose but that's the Holy Spirit working in our lives. The very fact that one day, by His grace, I lay my head back, and I close my eyes, and I exit this body, and this body dies, and I remain a believer, that's the power of God. But folks, the Bible also speaks in this doctrine that we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And we can grieve Him by our speech that is not edifying. We're to be controlled by the Spirit of Christ in the fullness of God. And folks, do you realize that the Holy Spirit has a sword? there is the sword of the Spirit which is the the Word of God the Word of God and we as a church are to be praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit what that means is is that our prayers are to be scripturally informed and scripturally saturated as we pray That's what the Holy Spirit looks like within a local New Testament church. That's not all that it looks like, but that's enough to kind of give us an idea about this. There is one hope of our calling. Folks, it is a great thing to know that there is a future for the people of God. Paul would write to the Corinthians, to those in that church that were denying the bodily resurrection, he would write to them, if all we have is hope in this life, we are of all men most miserable. And folks, I can say this with all forthrightness, our society is miserable because they're learning that all the things that they put their hope in empty. It's empty. We go from family, that's going to be my hope. We go to money, that's going to be my hope. And we find it empty and we become narcissists. And folks, we're moving in our culture from a people who only have hope in themselves. They're going to find that that's empty. And the next thing you have after that is suicide. And do you know what's rising among young people today? Suicide. They have no hope. But folks, we have a hope because we at one time were without Christ. We were aliens from the Commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise. We had no hope and without God in this world. And now that we're born again, by the grace of God, God wants us to know what is the hope of this calling. He wants that confident expectation to grow in us so that we can walk worthy of the hope of this calling. So that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11, he says this, Paul says, we always pray for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that God would count you worthy of the hope of this calling. Paul's praying for that. That's a great hope. We have one Lord that is the Lord Jesus Christ. This Greek term for Lord is the title for Jehovah in the Old Testament. In the book of Ephesians that word Lord is used 26 times. Do you think he believes in one Lord? He does believe in one Lord. And there is one faith. Jude would write concerning this body of truth, Beloved, I, give all dil- I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, but it is needful for me to write to you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. This is what Paul was saying. Be diligent to guard the body of truth. Why? Because people will come in secretively who don't hold to these things. Or they will redefine the terms. Folks, it is the body of truth that we placed our faith in. Ephesians 1 verse 13 says, "...in whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth." He says that we're saved by grace through this faith, not of ourselves. This faith is a gift of God. And that Christ dwells in our hearts by faith, by the exercise of our faith, our full persuasion in this body of truth. This is how we're to be filled. and there is one baptism and folks i I, let me say this about the faith if all of what i just said is true about the faith and it is then that means faith is knowable there's certain things about god that are knowable there's things about god that are unsearchable they're unknowable he hasn't revealed it but what he has revealed is knowable You don't have to wonder about it it's in your bible there's one baptism i told you that i believe this is referring to spiritual baptism first corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13 says for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body do you hear the oneness one spirit one body one baptism By one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. There's a common spirit. In Galatians, he would talk about, for as many of you as has been baptized into Christ have put on Christ and folks there's one body there's one baptism I don't care if you're Jew or Greek I don't care if you're a slave or whether you're free I don't care what your gender is there's one body and every person who is truly regenerated is all baptized into what one body by the Spirit of God that's comforting our gender doesn't matter about this, our ethnicity doesn't matter about this, our social economic position doesn't matter about this. Whether we're educated or not doesn't matter about this. We're all baptized into that one body. And lastly, there's one God and Father of all. And folks, God and Father, our God and Father is the subject of this book. And you'll be reminded that we started off this book, verse 2, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Grace comes to us by God from God our Father. Peace comes to us from God our Father through His Son. He is the Blessed One, and it is He who has blessed us with all these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. And Christ has chosen to share them with us. It's God our Father who gives to us the Spirit of God, who gives to us the Spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God the Father. It is that same God who is rich in mercy for the great love wherewith He loved us. He saved us through His Son. And folks, whether it be our faith, whether it be the grace, everything is by the gift of God the Father. He has given this to us. And God the Father himself is the one who has foreordained the good works that we are to walk therein, like humility, gentleness, love, the fruit of the Spirit. He's foreordained this, which means he's foreordained for us to walk in this single body of truth, And folks, God our Father is the one to whom Paul bends his knees and prays to. It is to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ that we are to give thanks always for everything. Folks, He's the source, isn't He? There's not multiple gods out there. When you say, well, I believe there's more than one way to God, what you're telling me is you believe there's more than one God. Because Paul argues in Romans that there's only one way because there's only one God. And folks, what does this mean for us as I conclude? What does it mean for us? We are a gathered, local, geographical, New Testament assembly, striving to be that. What would it mean for us to walk in unity? Well, it wouldn't mean that we all are gifted the same way. It wouldn't mean that we all have the same personality. It wouldn't mean that we all had the same ethnicity or the same gender or any of that type of foolishness. What would it mean? Well, it would mean that we have the same aim. What would it mean? It would mean that we have a common doctrine among us. And folks, if that aim is not in a local New Testament assembly to some degree and to some measure, and if this oneness of doctrine is not there in a church, that unity of doctrine, it really doesn't matter what their numbers are or what their activity is or how many programs they have or what type of quote-unquote impact that they're having on the world so-called, they are not... Walking worthy of the calling by which we have been called. Do we see that? This is why it takes all diligence <laughs> to maintain this unity in a local New Testament congregation. And folks, there is re- a real danger about saying, well, doctrine doesn't matter, right? I've heard this a lot. Well, you know, there's a lot of controversy over in things and I'm just not going to study it because who cares? I'm a Christian. Christ is my Lord. That's it. The New Testament doesn't know anything like that. God has revealed certain things about our future for our hope, right? for our hope. There's a real danger when you say this cliché that Christianity is not about doctrine, it's about life. Or Christianity is not about doctrine, it's about love. Or Christianity is not about doctrine, but it's about Christ. Or it's not about doctrine, but it's about Jesus. Folks, I don't know who Jesus is apart from the doctrine. And I don't know who Christ is apart from the doctrine. I don't even know what true life looks like apart from the doctrine. Right. There is no life or love or Christ apart from a right understanding of the person of our faith. None. My faith is not in love. My faith is not in life. My faith is in the risen Son of God as it has been described in my Bible. And that's doctrine. That's teaching. Folks, we have a sickness in our churches today. And it's a lack of this understanding. And it's a lack of God's people bearing under the teaching and the doctrine. Well, I don't want doctrine. I want a motivational speaker. I want somebody to help me through the week. I want somebody to use the Bible to be therapeutic with me. There might be times to do some of those types of things, but foundationally you and I are not going to come to Christ apart from the right understanding of the doctrine. We're not going to walk worthy of Christ unless we understand this doctrine. We're not going to be prepared to meet Him apart from the understanding of this doctrine. Listen to how he words it. He tells us to be filled with the fullness of God, right? Then God says, you need to be given the spirit of revelation and wisdom in the knowledge of me. Do you hear that? He says, be filled with the spirit. Does he not say that? Colossians. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. God has done everything that He's ever done through His Word. And He grows us through the Word. He matures us by the Word. He saves us by that same Word. And we will appear before Him in glory by the same Word of promise that He has given to us in our Bibles. Let's pray.